What's going on, everybody? Happy Sunday, uh, Sunday service. You know, excited to be here. As always, my name is Cody Barton. We actually have a special guest on today. We have John. How do I say her last name? I don't want to butcher it. No, it's Stover. No problem. Stover. Everyone butchers it. <laughs> John Stover. Well, guys, um, happy Sunday again. Um, for those of you that may be tuning in for the first time, um, we do this every Sunday. You know, myself and my business partner, Pace Morby, um, you know, we've been doing this now for almost two years. You know, within in a couple months, this is going to be two years. And, you know, for those of you that have been with us since the beginning, you know, this started out with us just doing a free conference call on, you know, a free phone number for people to just call in. So, you know, the show has definitely grown and evolved since then. Um, so, you know, we're excited to get into it tonight. And for those of you that may not know, um, we are on Spotify and iTunes now. So you can find Sunday service on Spotify and iTunes, listen to us um, in past episodes while you're driving to work or driving to appointments to meet sellers or whatever you're doing. So we're excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Um, we're going to you know, open up for some great questions. For those of you that don't know this, John Stober is an expert in the multifamily space. I'm actually really excited because this is outside of my expertise as well. And I know that's what, you know, Pace was telling me that you've been adding a lot of value to people in the creative finance uh, Facebook group. So in answering questions and people have been saying, man, like you got to get this guy, you know, to go live in the group. And we're like, you know what, let's just have him come on Sunday service. You know, let's talk about multifamily. That's not my expertise or Pace's. So, you know, we're, we're excited to chat with you and, you know, have you share some value to the audience tonight. You know, we have over a hundred people on now, um, you know, checking in, tuning in. So, uh, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like if you had to give your brief story in, you know, 60, 90 seconds, you know, uh, where you started, you know, how you got into the multifamily, you know, real estate investing space and, you know, the underwriting space. I mean, how did this all begin? Yeah. Um, well, 90 seconds. I'll try. So I, when I graduated from college, I graduated with uh, degrees in finance and accounting. I got my first job offer out of school and I looked at the salary and the vacation package and I immediately knew I was like, this just isn't going to work. I need to make more money. That ultimately led me uh, down the real estate investing rabbit hole where I started trying to do, you know, I initially started with a house hack and then I did a flip after that. And I really tried to get in into wholesaling actually before that to make some quick cash. And it just became pretty quickly apparent to me that my skill sets don't didn't really lie with, you know, trying to speak with sellers and buying wholesale tons of houses, you know. I have a finance and accounting degree. I'm not like super extroverted, but what I can really do is I can analyze a deal and I can get as complex and nitty gritty as you want. And that really, in my opinion, lends itself more to multifamily because the analysis can get pretty complex. So while I'm in the middle of doing this flip, you know, I was really, uh, I learned some really tough lessons through that with a partner and we each had these small multifamily properties at the time. You know, I had a two unit, he had a four unit. And it was just that, that moment we were like, well, we're just going to become multifamily investors. This is what we want to do anyways. Um, wholesaling, flipping was just a way to get quick capital to buy apartment buildings. Um, but we just didn't want to wait much longer. So from it was like a couple of years ago, I think two years ago, we were just like, you know, we're going to we're going to figure out how to buy apartments. That's awesome. I love that. So. So then, um, so now we're, take us to today, you know, what, what are you working on? You know, are you working with a group? What, what is, what is it, you know, life look like right now for you, John, with, you know, with your work? Um, so, I mean, I have my own company called Kronos Investment Partners, right? <laughs> Sorry, right here. And so we're just actively sourcing deals, underwriting tons of properties, primarily focused in Jacksonville, Florida. And earlier this year, you know, I invested in a joint venture opportunity on a pretty heavy value add deal, a distressed property in Little Rock, Arkansas. So we bought an 18 unit and a 16 unit. And, you know, we took that property from like 35% occupancy when we took it over. And now we're, we're getting up, we're like in the 60% range. And, you know, hopefully by the summer, we're going to be in that 80 to 90% economic occupancy range and it'll be an absolute cash cow. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's really, that's really cool. You know, Pace and I have been talking about because you have, uh, 
you know, investors are always battling like, what's what should you be investing in? Should it be single family homes? Should you be getting into multifamily? And it's interesting to me, you know, just hearing on like 16 unit or 18 unit properties, so a little bit smaller properties mm-hmm. in, in the realm of, you know, where a lot of guys are like 100 unit, 200 unit, you know, plus type buildings. Um, and something that, you know, myself and Pace have uh, talked about, because we're buying, you know, we buy a lot of properties creatively, right? Like we're buying on seller carries, we're buying subject to, um, and, you know, holding um, that way, but where you're able to take down one property and it's 18 units. I mean, that's something that takes us months, you know, half a year up to a year to, to do, you know, with buying the right deals. Right. So um, when it comes to, you know, the difference on like multifamily investing versus like single family homes, like what made you want to go more that route? Was it just because you didn't want to have the conversations with the homeowners and the wholesaling world just didn't make as much sense to you? Or what were your thoughts on that? No, I mean, that's part of it. And when I really assess my strengths and weaknesses, just the numbers being a little more complex with multifamily, it made more sense for me, or at least in my opinion, to go that route. You know, the analogy I always tell myself at least is I can never compete with like a plumber on a single family house who can do all the work him or herself. The numbers just aren't complicated enough where that plumber can still analyze the deal and then his costs are going to be so much cheaper. But when it comes to an 18 unit and a 16 unit, you know, that plumber is never going to be able to compete with me because the numbers get a little bit more complex and it's just too big of a project for them to do all the work. And the other thing that really drew me to multifamily is, you know, it's not like these big sexy syndications where I'm like, I'm going to own a thousand units and make like a hundred K of cash flow a month. It's just the fact that the deals are bigger where I could bring on partners to leverage my weaknesses. Like, I really don't like dealing with contractors and construction right now. I'm learning it, but I don't want to take the lead on that in any project until I have more experience. So I can kind of be like the the CFO of the project, you know, underwrite the deals, monitor all the financials, and then I can have other partners with more like real operating real estate experience and leverage that. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, a lot of the things that you're saying, you know, speak to me because that's more of what my interest is as well. And, you know, within what my, what I do with Pace and all of our businesses, whether it's underwriting, you know, the seller carries or it's underwriting the sub twos or just underwriting the fix and flips. I mean, it's pretty, they're not too complex to underwrite and put together, but that's what I do enjoy the most doing. And, you know, I don't want to talk to, you know, the crews. I don't want to talk to, you know, the sellers, I just want to be in my world where I'm, I'm basically deciding whether this deal actually makes sense or not just based on the data. Um, you know, so I, I definitely um, can see where that comes from too. Cause I, I feel like I'm in the perfect world myself now because I don't have to, I don't talk to the sellers. I, I'm not, you know, dealing with the contractors. So I, I think I definitely um, can relate with that for sure. Um, so let's, let's get into some questions here. Um, Kelly, I think just popped this one up. Um, let's see what we have. I'm going to drop that one off real fast. So let's jump into, I mean, where do you even get started? Like if somebody on here, and this is helpful for me even, you know, if somebody on here wants to move into the multifamily space, they maybe they've bought some, you know, single family rentals, but they want to get into some bigger properties. You know, what would you say is their next step? I mean, would you say that it's looking at properties that are, you know, 16 units to 24 units, like that smaller unit range getting started or what What would your suggestion be there? You know, I think that really depends on, on the person because if you have a lot of capital, like let's say you've just got a million dollars of cash burning a hole in your pocket, the best way for you to get started may be to invest as a limited partner in someone's deal with someone who can teach you the ropes, or honestly, maybe it is like best for you to go drop 30 grand on, on a coaching course and have someone walk you through it. For me, you know, when I was starting out, I didn't have 30 grand to drop on a coaching course and I didn't have, you know, it's usually like 50 grand minimums to invest as a limited partner. So I had to figure out like what skill set can I develop where I can add value to someone else more experienced than I can. And for me, that was analyzing or in multifamily, we call it underwriting properties. So mastering that skill, or at least becoming a quote unquote expert in that 
in that realm. So that way I can provide value to someone else. If you're not great with numbers though, maybe you are great at talking with sellers or talking with brokers and you can get great deal flow. Or maybe you have a bench of investors or a rich uncle who can provide capital to a deal. And that way, you know, you can leverage yourself into, you know, some bigger properties with more experienced operators, but figuring out that skill set, that superpower that you're going to develop if you don't have tons of capital to invest, I think is the second step after just getting educated. Okay. So where would you say is the best place to start to get educated? Say somebody on here is, I, I, Hey, I don't, John, I don't have any money, so I can't be the guy that invests in the deal. I don't have the money to invest in a coach. I mean, what, where would you say is the best place to go? I mean, where, where would someone want go to start learning your, the skills that you learned, like underwriting these deals? Well, so like every multifamily investor has a podcast, so there's tons of free content out there. Um, so I would start there. And there's also tons of multifamily Facebook groups out there. So I, I would go into the groups and this is actually what I did when I started, go into like a few groups and become real members of the community. You don't have to know much. You don't even have to know anything. Just go in there, start asking questions and, you know, get on phone calls with people and, you know, do networking online. And as you start to do that and talk with more people, you'll just start to pick up the lingo and learn more. And you can have more in-depth conversations with people, which will just like further you, I guess, further you along in the process. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's what um, I mean, just like you coming into the creative financing group and adding value to people in that group. I mean, you know, that's why we're on this on the uh, podcast together today is just, you know, jumping into the groups and not being scared to, you know, get involved in the conversation. So um, I really like that that advice. And that's that's actually tangible advice that somebody that doesn't know anything can do is go join a group and start just, you know, rubbing elbows, you know, in a Facebook group with some other investors. Um, so Zasha, I, I'm so sorry if I did not pronounce your name right, but has a question on, you know, what cities do you invest in? Is it just Arkansas, like you said, or are you looking at multiple markets or where else are you looking at? No, so we have the deal in Little Rock right now. And then one of my fart partners lives in Jacksonville. So we're really honing in on that market along with Florida just in general. And then, you know, multifamily, it's a team sport and capital raising and asset management are a really big part of that. So I'm developing relationships with, you know, colleagues and other operators in other markets who maybe they can find the deal, but, you know, they don't want to manage the asset or they need help raising the capital. And, you know, once you have trust and rapport built up, maybe I raise the capital, I help manage the assets um, and I get into deals in markets that I'm not currently in. Gotcha. I like that. So, so Bradley's asking how much cash flow per unit do you aim for? I think, I feel like it's kind of a general question because it'll probably be something like it depends on the deal, but I'm going to let you run with that. Yeah, it, it kind of does. So like in our little rock property, we bought them for like 23 K a door. And then we're probably putting between about like 10 K a unit into rehab. So for that, if we're getting, you know, 75 to a hundred bucks, a door of cash flow, that's probably pretty good. The price is so low that the cash on cash returns will be in double digits and we'll probably refi out most, if not all of our money. But if you're looking at more expensive stuff, that's like 200 a door, you know, I'd probably be looking for like two to $400 a unit of cash flow. Gotcha. Um, let's see. So it looks like Enzire, I don't know if that's the name, that's a YouTube name it looks like. Um, has a question on, do they process tax delinquencies on apartment buildings the same way they do on single family residential? I'm assuming as far as for data and marketing to direct a seller. You know, I'm, I'm not sure, but I would imagine they do. Because if your taxes go delinquent, that's going to get reported to the municipality you're in. But don't quote me on that. So what, what's the primary way that you would say that you're going about finding deals? Um, is it direct to seller or is it going through brokers? I've heard that a lot of people, you know, networking with brokers is one of the best ways, but you know, what, uh, is there a part of that strategy that you're doing direct to seller on these properties? We've tried doing some direct to seller in the past and it just hasn't been very effective for us. But again, also I'm not like the extroverted person who's very good at talking to sellers. 
Um, so our primary deal source right now is through brokers and then just other partners who maybe need help raising capital. But on the 34 units in Little Rock, that actually came through a wholesaler. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I like that. So, um, so what would you say as far as, you know, so what made you know that that was going to be a deal? So that was, can we break down that deal a little bit more? Like going, I want to hear more about like, okay, you saw it at, these are the numbers that you saw it at. And this is why you decided that that made sense to be a deal. Like I'd like to spend a little bit more time on that and get an understanding. And I'm sure the listeners on want to know like, okay, well, what makes that a deal versus the deal that's listed on the MLS in my local city that, you know, it looks like it cash flows and it's a good area, but you know, what were, what were some of those numbers that you were looking at? Yeah, that's a great question. Now we're really getting into the stuff I love too. I mean, when we saw that deal again, we're, we're buying it at, about 23k a door and there were sales comps that were supporting you know 45 to 55k a door exit prices so it's just like if you've got like a lead on a single family home or a, a two to four unit if you're getting a single family home someone's offering it to you for 20k and you know the arv is going to be like 180 even if you don't know the rehab budget right there which is going to be super important you're probably going to go hmm like i want to look into this and really dig into the numbers so that's what happened with this one. And then we looked at like the median income for both properties. Rents on the rent roll were in like the 400 to $550 range. Well, the median income in the one neighborhood was, I mean, it's actually pretty low. It's like slightly over 20,000. And then in the other neighborhood, it was 36,000. So, you know, rule of thumb is you want for affordability, you want your median income in the area to at least be three times that of rent. So we figured even if the median income is $20,000 in an area, that's about three times the rent for a $650 to a $700 unit. In the other neighborhood with $36,000 of median income, you know, we could potentially get the rents even higher. So as we're just like looking through the rental comps in the area and talking with our property manager, they're confirming with us that, yeah, you, you know, you'll be able to rent these for 600 to $700 a unit, which is a $200 rent bump over what was on the rent roll, like on average. And when you're talking about like four to $500 rents, a $200 bump is huge. I mean, that's like a 40% bump in your yeah. total, in total income. Yeah. And most of that's going to go straight to your net operating income. And net operating income is how your property value is derived in multifamily. It's not just sales comps, although that is important. But so as we increase the value of the net operating income, we're going to divide that by what's called a cap rate. And the cap rate, let's say it's 7%. So if net operating income is $100,000 a year and the cap rate in that market is 7%, you're going to take 100K, divide it by 7%. And that's going to end up being like probably like $1.4 million in valuation. So between looking at the sales comps, looking at these massive rent bumps we're getting or that we we thought we could get when we were underwriting it, it just looked like there was a huge spread on what we were buying it for, the money we'd have to put it into it, and how much the ARV of the units would be. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, that made it pretty simple to understand for, for me and I'm sure a lot of people on here. Um, so... Here's actually, we have a really good question, I think, um, from Donovan. And so I guess break into this as much or as little as you want. But so when you're underwriting a value add, what is the minimum cap rate that you will take on? Um, if Or if that maybe doesn't matter, if it's going to be a value add. Um, and is your goal to exit out of that deal in three to five years to take on larger properties? Is it the whole long term? Or what does that look like? This is a great question. So when I'm buying a property in general, I do not care about the entry cap rate. Like when we bought this portfolio, the 34 unit portfolio, I mean, the cap rate was actually negative because the owner was just mismanaging it by so much. And this is where the sales comps coming in is so important because we're buying for 23K a door. We're putting about 10K of rehab into it all in. We're probably into the units for like 35K a door and we're potentially going to sell them for 45 or 55k a door. So even if you're doing the 70% ARV rule, like we meet that threshold, which is pretty awesome for multifamily 
since you have tenants paying a lot of the holding costs. So I'd say think of like a single family home if you're going to do a flip on it. If you're going to buy some rundown single family home, it's probably worthless in its current condition. The only reason you might pay 60 grand for that home is because by the time you put another 40 into it, it's going to be worth $160,000. So it's it's no different in multifamily. Like you can buy something at a negative cap rate, put some money into it, manage it more efficiently to get your income and the net operating income up and you can still create a whole bunch of equity in the property. Awesome. Awesome. Now that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's where, you know, some like, cause I was even kind of curious on that too, but you know, your explanation of like, Oh, this rundown house, it's worthless to somebody to use it right now, but the value is in it being worthless right now to turn it into something, you know, adding that value to it. Um, so let's jump. Let's see. Keegan has a question on, is there a certain class of multifamily that you would recommend beginning uh, beginning with or is you know something to stay away from I'm assuming you know a b c d class you know I'm assuming that's what Keegan's referring to and then also guys if you have questions on multifamily this is the live to be asking those questions on so that we can have John get those answered for you um, so what are your thoughts on this for Keegan's question I think if you can get into b class right out of the gate that's the place to be because you have stable tenants who can pay their rent even during you know crises like COVID, and you're not going to be paying these A class prices, which could be anywhere from like two hundred thousand to four hundred thousand a door. With that being said, I think C class is where you can make a lot of money. Um, you have a lot more mom and pop owners, in my opinion, who just don't manage the property efficiently and. This is actually, you know, the properties we bought. You can imagine we're paying 23K a door. Like this is like a D class property that we're turning into a C and uh, putting C class tenants into them. But as a result, our returns are going to be really high. And like with none of us, like we had good money. Our partnership had some money going into the deal, but we wouldn't have been able to afford some 50 to 100 unit B class property. We were able to afford a 34 unit C minus property that bringing up to a C plus. That makes, that makes sense. So when, when it comes to, cause I'm, I'm a noob to the multifamily space. So this is a question for me and a follow-up to Keegan's question is if you're looking at, um, you know, C like a C property, you're saying that it's a lot of mom and pop owners. So are C class properties typically smaller? Are they not, typically like hundred unit and above type properties or the C-class usually like under a certain amount of units or does that not really matter? No. And, and maybe I said that wrong. It's just from what I've seen, you tend to get a lot more C-class properties with the smaller unit counts, not so much the B-class, but you still have like one, two, 300 unit C-class properties because they were just built a long time ago. Got it. Got it. Okay. Now that, that makes sense. Um, okay. We have another good question here. So, okay. Camo high Kalama question is what are you specifically looking for in multifamily? Like what is, what's your specific criteria? So it sounds like C class properties that you can turn into B class or, or D to turn into C. And then are you planning on staying in this kind of unit count that you're in or is it to grow from there? Obviously, you're looking in Jacksonville and, you know, Arkansas, but what else what else is important to you and what you're looking for right now? So our, our team has a couple different models we're trying to employ right now. We have like a joint venture model, so not doing a syndication, which is where you raise money from passive investors. And we're looking for 20 to 50 units in that model built after 1980s in b or a neighborhoods and if it's a, even if it's a d property if it's in a b neighborhood like we'd be very interested in it and we have a syndication model that we're trying to get more into this this year where it's going to probably be around 100 plus units we can put payroll on the property payroll meaning a full-time staff on the property and for that we're looking for you know a little bit newer vintage 1980s at the older at the oldest but still looking for those BA areas. I guess it's kind of the same, you know, we're, we're more focused on the location uh, than we are the condition of the property. It's like, you know, you love to buy the ugliest house in the nicest neighborhood. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. So, um, so, okay. So we have a couple other, other questions here. So Bill is asking, are there deals on LoopNet or do you guys use LoopNet in any way? I guess I I consider that in my head is probably the commercial MLS where everybody's probably looking at deals and there's probably not a lot of good deals on there, but I could be completely wrong. I've yet to find a deal on LoopNet and everyone says LoopNet is where deals go to die. But I know a few people who have found deals. That's what I think about the MLS. So that it's where deals go to die. Hey Cody, am I still with you? Oh, there you are. It cut out for a moment there. I hear you again though. Okay. Sorry. You said you're saying something about the MLS. Was were you saying is that where deals go to die? Yeah, yeah, that's also where they go to die for uh like if a house goes up on there, it's like, yeah, that's not definitely not gonna be a deal if it was going to be one. <laughs> right. And that's kind of what everyone says about apartments too, but I know at least two people who have bought deals off of LoopNet. So, you know, if you really dig enough, I'm I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, you make enough offers, you probably find the right seller at the right time with the right broker that's gonna help try to put a deal together. Uh so, ooh, this is a good question. So Nancy is, met you in Mesa last week, Cody. I know nothing about the different classes of properties. Can you explain what that looks like? I guess, you know, we didn't do a great job of that for people that are new. Like what's an A-class property versus a B-class versus a C-class, D? Like what what is the difference on that? Uh, so I, th- I would say A-class properties probably built within the last 10 years. It, it more so has to do with like the age of construction and kind of like how well maintained it is. So A class, I would say built in the last 10 years, B class, probably 10 to 30 years old, C class, 30 to 50 years old. And then D class is probably anything over 50 years old or just anything with tons of deferred maintenance on it that you're going to have to put a lot of money into it. Awesome. So that was super helpful. And uh, Nancy, thanks for the question. That's such a great question. I'm sure that helped a lot of people that are probably too scared to ask, you know, hey, what what are the classes of properties? Uh, Let's see here. So we have a question from the football dad. When doing a multifamily deal, is the contract different than a standard purchase and sale agreement? So I'm honestly not too familiar with a standard purchase and sale agreement. I mean, I've, like I've bought a couple properties for myself, but for like the multifamily deals, we had an attorney draft up our own PSA. It was kind of customized. So in that regard, it is, it's not just going to be some standard boiler t- uh, boilerplate template. Awesome. Awesome. So Another great question here it says Facebook user. I don't know who this is, but the question is how much equity do you decide to give away to raise capital? So if you're raising capital to put money in a deal, what does that look like for the capital partner versus, you know, you as one of the uh, underwriters? I mean, what does that breakdown look like for the people involved in the deal? I mean, you have to, so you have to be really careful when you're talking about giving away equity just to raise capital because the SEC actually doesn't allow you to do that otherwise, unless you have a broker dealer license. So you have to have some other active role in the deal, whether it's you're involved with the management of it, you know, you found it, you underwrote it. Um, you can't just raise capital. That being said, I know some groups, they'll give away like 30 to 40% of the deal for the capital raising piece but you have to be involved in some other facet of the deal. Got it. Got it. No, that that's definitely, you know, great to know. I mean, again, that's not something that, you know, I, I know too much about, so it's good to know that, you know, going in, um, you know, when you are looking to raise, uh, raise capital. So Keegan has a follow-up question for you, John. So when upgrading the property from a C class to a C plus, or B even, it sounds like. Uh, do you typically see a lot of vacancies start to happen due to the tenants now being unable to afford the premium that is charged, or is there a way that you project you know, what that's gonna look like when you start raising the rent and improving the property? 
Well, so usually you're going to start raising the rents once you do interior renovations on the units. So you're going to have to make those tenants leave anyways. And often this is just done when, you know, through natural attrition. So the average tenant spends two years in an apartment complex. So when their lease runs out, you don't renew it. And then you just renovate the unit. And then you put a new tenant in there for a higher rent. It's not like you're going to go through that complex and then from day one of the takeover to say, hey, everybody, like we haven't done any improvements to the property. There's new management in town. We're going to bump your rents 200 bucks a month. You, know, you usually want to add value to the property first and work inside out. So work on the exteriors. If there's deferred maintenance, take care of that. Maybe put a new like fresh coat of paint so it's got a new look on it. And then start working on the interiors of the property and renovating the units. Often what you'll see happen is that the tenants are actually going to be really glad that you're putting money back into the property and taking care of it. And sometimes they're okay with paying the higher rent. And if they're not, you know, they just leave, you rehab the unit and you put a new one in there. Got it. I like that. I mean, start, start pushing the, you know, probably some of the more problem tenants out as you start doing that anyways. I mean, uh, make, makes a lot of sense. So Marsha, I, I'm curious on this as well, because this is something that Pace and I have been having the conversation about, uh, you know, do we want to buy more rentals right now with everything going on with COVID? I mean, do we want to, um, you know, deal with not being able to, to evict tenants? Cutting out here. Sorry about that. Um, is that something that you're worried about with COVID and, you know, non-payment of rent? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's really a worrisome. Luckily for us, we haven't had any issue with evicting non-paying tenants. Well, I guess not true. Out of the 34, we have two tenants that they're behind and they've turned in their CDC paperwork and, um, you know, we can't evict them until the moratorium is over, but there is rental assistance coming out with this new stimulus package. So we're really on top of that, making sure that we have like all up-to-date news on it. And when we can apply for the rent relief, we're going to be getting on the tenants about that. We've also looked up a bunch of local charities that the tenants who are behind can reach out to, to get help with their rent and their utilities. So as far as making offers on properties, one thing we're doing now when we can get away with it is we're putting in something called a COVID clause. And what the COVID clause is, is let's say you buy a property for a million dollars. The seller is going to take some of their sales proceeds, let's say 50 grand, and they're going to put that 50 grand into escrow. And then in your offer, you're going to have like a pre-identified you know, income number. So let's say that income number is 100K a month. For the first six months that we're holding the property, if that number falls below 100K, then we actually get to pull the money out of escrow and reimburse ourselves for it. So that's another thing we're doing to mitigate the risks. And then we're going to start offering tenants month-to-month -month leases for the market rate ones. So if they can't, if they're not paying rent, we can evict them for a tenant holdover as opposed to failure to pay rent. Ah, uh, so converting. So let me get that right. So you're converting them to month to month tenants. So they're not holdover tenants for non-payment of rent. No, no, no. Sorry. Um, so if they're, if they're on a year long lease and they don't pay the rent, we can try to evict them for failure to pay rent. But if they turn in their CDC paperwork, we're kind of screwed until the moratorium is over. So what we're doing on new leases is we're offering them a month to month option which a lot of tenants like anyways, because it's flexible. And then if they stop paying the rent, we don't have to file failure to pay rent on them. We can file tenant holdover because their lease is over. Interesting. So then you're able to still get them out by doing that. Mm -hmm. I like that. I'm, I'm making a note to look at that for our single family homes. Cause we have, we have a few, um, problem child tenants that we've been dealing with for um, a few months now. And so that's, that's definitely sounds like a good, a uh, good potential option is just getting everyone on, on month to month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll see how it works. Our manager tells us it does take longer to do an eviction for that. But if this moratorium goes until like September, you know, it's better to get them out in a few months than waiting nine months. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. So I, I like that. And, you know, the strategy of, you know, keep holding 50,000 in escrow on new properties that you're buying. Um, one of the things that we're doing is we're focusing a little bit more on, and now I got to look into this month to month deal and, you know, for Arizona laws for where we primarily buy at. But one of the things that we're doing is we're buying more Airbnbs right now. So just, you know, sell, seller carries and then turning them into Airbnbs. So we don't have any, you know, they're not creating tenancy being over the, for 30 days um, to still be able to acquire more deals without, you know, having the fear of some more problem tenants. That's awesome. It's kind of the same thing. It's just like, you know, shorter term leases or short term rentals. Definitely. So let's see. Oh, Justin. So Justin says, are you rating A, B, C and D class properties based on con condition, location, quality of management, combination of all? Um, John did answer that a little bit as far as, you know, the um, he really broke down um, all of that. I mean, do you want to briefly, you know, answer that again? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think a really good point in this question is Justin's asking about the location. So at least in my mind, I view like neighborhood class and property class completely different. Property class is more dependent on the age of the property and the condition of it as well. Whereas neighborhood class, if you're in an A area, there's probably very little crime. The schools are great. And median income in that neighborhood is really high, depending on the market. Because 100K in San Francisco is, isn't much. Whereas like in Little Rock, you know, you're definitely in an A neighborhood. But so like for us, we really want those C, B properties, even D properties that are in B and A neighborhoods. Awesome. Awesome. So Keegan, man, you've had so many great questions. I Another question from Keegan is, do you have a pre-approval letter, basically like a pre-qualification letter before getting a deal? Or do you work on obtaining financing based upon a specific deal? Like how, how does that process work? That's a great question. So with the current deals that we bought, we actually bought them on a, a master lease option. So we didn't have to go through this. But for the other deals that we're analyzing and making offers from, we'll get what we call debt quotes, which is where you just reach out to your lender and figure out you know, what the financing terms are going to be like. And for multifamily, the lender is more so financing the property based on the income. They're not looking at like your personal credit score and how many assets you hold in your name. And that's why someone like me, you know, I can make offers on a 100 unit property when I'm not some multimillionaire. But with that being said, the caveat is you do have to have someone on your team who has signed on a multifamily loan before. It just doesn't have to be you. Oh, but cut me out there for a second. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Do I need to explain that again? I think, uh, no, I think we're good. I think it was on, on my end. Um, but let's jump to another question here. Let's see. Uh, ooh, this is one that I didn't even think of. Liz. Liz asks, don't we need to be careful as investors about upgrading a D to a C or C to a B class so that we aren't violating any tenant displacement ordinances. I know I've seen some stuff in like Philadelphia that they're starting to crack down and I know probably California cause it's California, yeah. but you know, how do you avoid that if that's a thing and depending on the market, I don't know. I try to avoid those markets in general. So I, I don't want to be in a market like California where I'm going to have to pay a tenant like $10,000 for cash to key for keys to upgrade their units. So I do know someone though, they actually specifically target Los Angeles as their market because of the rent control. So you can have market rent in Los Angeles of let's say like 2,500 bucks and you might have some tenant who's lived in a unit for 20 years and because of rent control, their rent is $900. So what they'll go do is they'll literally go offer that tenant like $25,000 for cash for keys to, just to get them out of the unit. And if they go move to like the Midwest, <laughs> that's like literally a down payment on a house. But so they give them 25 K for cash for keys or just some huge number rehab the unit. 
and then they get the rent up to market, which is 2,500. And so if we do some quick math here, Los Angeles, California has a super low cap rate. If we're taking rents from 900 to 2,500 bucks a month, that's $1,600 a month. Over 12 months, that is almost, that's $19,200 of additional income. The cap rate there is like probably 4%. So if we, let's say 20K divided by a 4% cap rate, 20 times 25 is, I mean, I think that's like $500,000 in equity you've added to the property through that unit. My math may be wrong on that, but if the rehab is 15K, cash for keys was 25K, you're you're adding like, you're putting 40K into that unit and you're adding hundreds of thousands of dollars in value. But I, I don't do that. And I think you really have to know what you're doing to do that. Yeah, so I, I would say the general consensus then on that is probably stay out of markets that uh, have the tenant displacement ordinances. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in my opinion, and you know, I, I'm sure you're probably similar on this is staying away from markets that are more tenant friendly in general. Yep. And they, those tend to be more left leaning states. Yeah, for sure. That's what, you know, it'll be interesting to see in Arizona as we have now switched to a, um, a blue state that, you know, whether we're going to start seeing some more of that, because there's already been some chatter here, which makes me and Pace start to wonder, we're like, you know, are we going to start to see some shifts in the way that the landlord-tenant laws are? Because here it's, you know, pretty easy to, um, prior to the moratorium, it's it was pretty easy to deal with bad tenants and getting bad tenants out of your property. So, um, you know, we'll we'll see what the future has in store for us. Well, you guys are probably in the best market in the country, though, in my opinion. So I, I feel like everything's going to work out. For, for Arizona? Yeah. I mean, if if I didn't, well, I'm in Denver now, but and I, I think Arizona is probably the best market to invest in in the country, just from a demographic perspective. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes for Arizona in general, I'll, I'll think to myself, I'm like, man, like, I feel like this is the best market to invest in. But then I start to think, I'm like, is it just because I live here? But I'm like, I look at the data, I look at, you know, the net migration here, people leaving a lot of states like the Californias, the Illinois, New York, Wisconsin. I mean, you know, just some of the colder states in general where we've already gotten some some of that population like Illinois and Wisconsin, Minnesota. Um, and then now with, you know, things that are kind of crazy going on in the world, you know, we've been getting so many people moving here from California, people moving here from New York. Um, and we just don't have enough housing. And yeah, I mean, like, I'm sure in your analysis, I don't know as far as the multi-family side of things, but it seems like there's a brand new A-class apartment complex being thrown up on every corner here. <laughs> yeah, and it, they still can't keep up with the demand. I mean, it, there is such a supply problem in Arizona that, I, I mean, there's not going to be vacancy for a while, in my opinion. And then the rents are still relatively affordable. So, you know, you hold on to your properties for another 10 years you could get some pretty substantial rent increases. I think they've been going up at least like five, 6% a year for probably the last decade, which is like, that's crazy. You know, I, I underwrite like two to 3% most times. So you're doubling or tripling that in some cases. And, and we've seen that even, I mean, and who knows how it just, everything is working in our favor for Arizona, you know, going in that direction. One of the things that, you know, like I look at, just probably seven, eight years ago, a three bedroom, two bath that I rented personally and, you know, a nice community in Tempe, Arizona, right outside a suburb of Phoenix. I rented this unit for uh, $11.50 a month. And now that same unit is renting for like $18.50 a month and it's not any nicer. And it's like, it's wow. an it's insane seeing, you know, what the, the prices have, have went up to here. And, you know, it's, it's been a slow creep that we've been seeing it, but um, I've seen it now where, you know, the next house that I was looking at a new build last week to go buy for myself. And, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, you can, you don't even have a shot at buying a new build here. You know, you could put a $20,000 non-refundable deposit down and, you know, but the build time's like 16 months, you're on a waiting list. And it's like, it, 
just seeing how competitive it is to even just get a home here. If you're buying traditionally, either going through a new build or, um, you know, buying resale. I mean, inventory is low, extremely low too. So whether people are buying or renting, it's just people are getting squeezed right now out here. Well, it's a good thing you guys already own out there because I mean, I'm sure you guys are going to do very well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, so that's what we're, we're seeing. Um, what are your thoughts on, I'm just curious, you know, what are your thoughts on, on multifamily in Arizona? It seems like it's, it's saturated, but from the sounds of it, um, you know, maybe not as much as I think it is. If I could invest in Arizona, like if I had the, the resources and the network there, I would, I, I think, um, from a multifamily perspective, Arizona is really interesting because in most markets, don't the taxes just, they go up like 5% a year, right? No matter what. I mean, there's not crazy reassessments on those taxes like you have in Texas or in the Southeast, or sometimes your taxes will go up like 40% in a year. And your insurance is already pretty low because you don't have natural disasters. Yep. So I think the price per unit is really expensive in Arizona but the operating expenses are probably a little lower than other markets, like let's say Florida, which is another great market, but you have to deal with like hurricane insurance and just like a lot of inclement weather, which damages your properties. And then just because of all these demographic trends we've been talking about, I think you're gonna have higher than normal rent growth in Arizona for probably the next decade and really low vacancy. And then because the cap rates are pretty low in the Phoenix metro area, I think depending on the class of property, it's probably somewhere between like four and 5%. I mean, if your rent growth is 5% a year on a million dollar property, that's $50,000 in income. If the expense growth is only 2% and it's 50%, you know, maybe you're going from 500K in expenses to 510K. <laughs> so, so like the additional net operating income is 50K minus 10K is 40K, which at a 4% cap rate, I'm gonna do the math right now is, we'll do 5% just to be conservative. I mean, on, on you're adding $800,000 in value to the property just for market appreciation, <laughs> which is a ton. Yeah, that's insane. So you just gotta find something that cash flows there because I think the market's gonna do the rest for you if you manage it effectively. Yeah, no, that, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, that's, that's crazy to think about. I mean, uh, we have some buddies that are um, the owners of batch services, batch skip tracing, batch leads. They're, they're doing a development they're doing a build to rent. I think they're building like 24 units or 30 units and just holding them to rent. Um, and I've started noticing that at, you know, that being a more, more common uh, thing that's happening now too, is just, these developers are coming in and they're not building to sell anymore. It's, there's more communities here that we're seeing pop up more and more. And, you know, I'm assuming probably even more nationwide is I think we're becoming more and more of a renter's nation hmm. that, you know, they're just building and renting. Cause I know there's a lot of people frustrated about it that want to buy because there's not enough homes to buy, but there's, they're just building more to rent. Mm -hmm. Totally. Are you seeing that in other markets as well? Like I'm not analyzing those types of deals. So are you seeing that more as far as build to rent for larger, uh, you know, instead of like building condos to sell, like just building, you know, apartments to rent? Yeah, I think you're definitely seeing more build, you know, more apartment builds than you are single family homes. You know, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's like the number of housing starts has been so much lower than the number of apartment starts in the last few years. Interesting. It'll be it'll be really interesting to see. I hope for Arizona State that we continue the same same direction. Um, so let's see. We have a couple other questions. So Tristan has a good one. This is a good basic one um, on cap rate. Tristan says, please explain cap rate. How is this calculated? I've never gotten an easy way to explain it. I'd like to understand it more clearly. What's the most clear and easy way that you could explain what cap rate is and how to calculate it? It's a good question, Tristan. So cap rate is just the net operating income of the property divided by your purchase price. So if the net operating income is $60,000 and you're buying it for a million dollars, your cap rate is 6%. So then the question becomes, how do you calculate net operating income? And your net operating income is just your income 
minus your expenses, but your expenses do not include your mortgage payment. Awesome. I think that was a great explanation. Tristan, let us know if you have a follow-up question that you want answered on, um, on cap rate. Oh, Daniel just commented cap rate equals annual profit divided by cost of asset. Yep. You're buying cash and not using any debt. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see here. Keegan, jumping in with more questions. For a newer multifamily investor, would you recommend investing in a market with a supply shortage or a surplus? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think if you could get into a market with a supply shortage like Arizona, you're going to make fantastic returns. Those markets also happen to be the most competitive and you may have a very tough time getting traction with brokers. But, you know, if you have capital to invest or, you know, you have relationships with other experienced operators, I mean, I think it could be you know, a fantastic opportunity for you. I think if you're just getting started, though, you know, if you can invest in your backyard, that's great because you can, you know, you can get there, see it yourself. I was living outside of Washington, D.C. For me, that wasn't really an option. So if there's markets that you like to vacation to or travel to, that's another great option. And then if you already have a strong network in a market, you know, that's also just a good option for you. But I think whether there is a supply shortage or a surplus, there's always strategies that work in, in any market. Awesome. Awesome. So guys, we are going to wrap up here shortly. So if you do have another question, I want to get those answered before, um, before we hop off here with John. Oh, let's see this real quick. So Alexandra says, I want to house hack a fourplex. A realtor told me that I need to prove I can cover the monthly mortgage if all four units are not rented out. Is that true? And if so, what can I do to get over this? Um, my experience on that and then things may have changed. I mean, COVID changed a lot of lending guidelines, so I could be inaccurate on this. But when I was looking at getting qualified for, um, you know, to purchase a property, you know, years ago when I was buying my first one uh, for me to live in, I was looking at buying multifamily property. And depending on the lender that you're going through, sometimes they can give you credit based on the length of one of the tenants the length of the tenant's occupancy in the property as against your, um, you know, to help with your debt to income. But it may have changed. I haven't looked into doing that for years. John, what do you have any insight on that? Or well, when I house hacked my duplex, they took like 75% of the income from the other unit and they counted that. So I might talk with another realtor or a lender. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I just didn't know if it had maybe changed. So I, yeah, the real number one realtors for the most part, and I'm just saying for the most part, don't always know what they're talking about. So I would be, I would go talk to a lender. The lender is going to be the expert when it comes to getting your financing in place, not the realtor. Realtors can know what they're doing. I have my real estate license, but you know, I did deal with and encounter a lot of realtors that were, you know, some dummies to work with. So you got to ask some other people, um, but that's a great way to get started in real estate, you know, house hacking a property like that. Um, so you did a duplex. So in Arizona, all of the duplex, triplex, fourplexes weren't in areas that I would live in. So I did a little bit house hacking, house hacking, but a little bit different. I bought the house and rented the rooms and it's a friends. And, you know, so I did it that way, but I think it's one of the best ways to start because then you know, your living expenses get super low and you could, you know, invest that money in other deals or in your education. Yeah, I'm looking to house hack again. You know, I sold that duplex, but it was just such an awesome strategy and you can get yeah. in for such a low down payment too. Yeah, hundred percent. So I, that's what I did on the first couple houses that I had bought was, you know, I moved in, rented rooms out eventually, you know, after a couple of years then moved into another property, did the same thing. Um, and you know, it just, it, it makes it really easy. I mean, obviously if you have a family and kids and all that, um, if you're going to be living in it and having roommates, that's a more of a challenge, but you know, doing the duplex, triplex, fourplex model, if you're in an area, um, that, you know, has, has those, then, you know, I think it's a great way to, uh, to get started. Um, Alexandra says, wow, thank you so much. Yes. Go talk to another lender, talk to another realtor, get someone that's, you know, going to help you work through this. Um, all right, let's see couple other 
Oh, Tyler Hur says, what is the point of analyzing the cap rate? Is it just see your ROI or what? why do you look at that? You know, I, I don't really look at the cap rate that much unless I'm looking at selling a property or refinancing it. And in that case, yeah, you need to know what the market cap rate is just so you can see what your investment metrics are going to be. But I don't find it very important when you're buying a property. Got it. Great, great question. So Moran is asking, how are multifamily sellers with seller financing? Have you found that they're more agreeable to it? I know a lot of people are coming in from the creative financing group. So people's hot, top, hot button is like seller carry sub two. You know, how is that more common or less common when, you know, dealing with these multifamily properties? Well, so like for ours, you know, we were able to, to get seller carry in the form of a master lease option. This was also like a single owner who had completely mismanaged the property and no bank was going to lend on it. So he didn't really have a choice. In my experience, when you start to get into like the 100 unit space, you're dealing with very sophisticated investors and you know, you're not dealing with distressed properties as much. I mean, they're still out there, but there's just like a value add component where you know the property cash flows and then you can like, increase the rents, reduce expenses to make it cash flow more. But a bank is going to still finance it. And these investors usually just want to take the cash because of their 1031ing into a new investment or because they're pretty sophisticated. They can earn higher than like a 6% return that you can offer them. So it's out there. I think it's probably more common, though, in like the under 50 unit range because you're going to tend to have more mom and pop investors there. That's a great answer. Moran, great question as well. So um, so let's do this. John, you know, we're super grateful to have you hop on here and you know obviously bringing value to people within you know within our community. Um, what can we do to help bring you value? What are you looking for? You know what what can you know the listeners that are listening to you now you know bring to value for you? Is it deals or I don't want to say money because there's the SEC stuff, but you know deals or what else can we do to bring value to you, John? It's definitely deals. So if you're in like Florida or one of these hot markets that are hot growing markets, you know, definitely reach out. Would love to connect. I, I do just it's important to me to have relationships with people I'm, I'm investing in, especially if we're going to raise money. And if you're interested in investing in multifamily, you know, definitely reach out, whether that's passively or actively. Um, and let's connect. So what's the best way for people to get connected with you? Is it, uh, do you want to give them your phone number? Do you want to give them your email? Do you want to tell them just go to your Instagram? What, where, where do you want them to find you? So Facebook, John Stober, and then my Instagram, which is just John underscore Stober. Those are probably the best ways to reach me. Um, underscores. Okay, so I'm going to type that out here. And then for those of you that may be listening in from Spotify or iTunes, that's John Stober underscore Stober on Instagram, J-O-H-N underscore Stober, S-T-O-E-B-E-R. So I'm going to post that in the comments too, for those of you guys that are listening live. So you can connect either via Facebook or Instagram. Um, any closing thoughts? What, what do you have, uh, you know, for people, it is kind of still the new year for people to have a great year. What would you say are top couple things to, um, to share with everybody before we wrap up? You know, I think just uh, take action and, and be persistent. Took me two years to get my first multifamily deal. And, you know, there were days where I felt like I was going backwards and I wanted to quit. And eventually just through staying in the game long enough, I had a great opportunity to fall in my lap. So, yeah, uh, persistence and grit. I, I think that's like truly the most important thing as far as becoming a successful investor. Awesome. Awesome. I would say that deal didn't fall, just fall on your lap because you spent two years grinding it out to figure it out so that when the deal came up, you were prepared for that opportunity. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But it was because I was in the game. Yes, you stayed in the game. Can't, can't, can't win the game if you if you get out of the game. So I love that. So, right. John, well, thank you so much for spending some time with us in our group. So, guys, again, you can connect with John on his Instagram or Facebook um, if you have deal opportunities. Hopefully, you know, I know I learned a lot. So I hope that everyone on here was able to learn a lot as well. Um, so 
As always, you know, we do Sunday service every Sunday, 7 p.m. Arizona time. We are on Spotify and iTunes, so you can, you know, listen to us on the way to work or on the way to your next seller appointment. So we appreciate all of you listening in. If you're not already in our Facebook group, make sure to go to Creative Financing with Pace Morby, and we'll see you in the community. Have a great Sunday, everybody.